Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome back to the Talking Blarney podcast with me, Stuart McNamara, and my co-host, Rob the Wrecking Ball Cross. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I was a boxer as well. <laughs> Did you kill a man? <laughs> it's a shame that Killer Cross is utterly taken by the wrestler, because that'd be, that'd, that's, a, that's a good name, you know. Uh, how are you today, Rob? I'm good. We're having a lovely weather here. We're, we're in the uh, the alternate location that we film this when it's yeah this. I think it's the, the better sounding location at the very least yeah when it's too warm to go to the other place yeah. lovely weather here we're having um, not the best news at the moment with the coronavirus we have a partial lockdown in not our not, yeah. where, we, not where we are we're lucky enough and uh, I'd still be working good weather because of it yeah I, I'm still <laughs> working remotely for the time being it was <laughs> supposed to go back to the office on Monday that's no longer happening but yeah uh, sure enough. we'll stay positive we'll stay positive we do our best uh, but uh, let's get into the, the the meat and boneses, the the meat and potatoes. It <laughs> bony potatoes, the bony potatoes. It? A big delicious lumper. <laughs> What's uniquely Irish today, Stu? So we've a bit of unfortunate news this week in that John Hume passed away. He did. So I think in his memory, we'll probably do uniquely Irish this week on him. Absolutely. I know that as a resident historian, mm-hmm. you'd be more versed in his career yeah. and life than I would. So why don't you start us off? Well, well, I, I guess in a, a nutshell, John Hume was widely regarded as one of the greatest Irishmen ever. Been described as our Martin Luther King by the late John Lewis, another civil uh, rights icon in the US that passed away not too long ago. And yeah, he was a, a, a nationalist, but a, a, a nationalist in, in Northern Ireland who always stuck by peace. Now, if we kind of explained a little bit before when we did the, yeah, the we, foreigner about... We explained the yeah, conflict in the North, or with the as, North. As best say. as we could. Yes. But effectively, John Hume came from the nationalist background, predominantly Catholic, as we as we discussed. Yes. And he was so a lot of injustice that was happening in early 60s Northern Ireland um, by the Protestant, predominantly Protestant uh, unionist um, government at the time. You had an overwhelming majority and it was, they were denying uh, Catholics one man, one vote. When it came to local elections, they would always rig the, 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 the local electoral yeah, areas. Yeah. So they, that, let's say... They if were all was, housed in the one Catholic area. Yeah, they would kind of have it that if there was a Catholic area, it would never be on its own. They'd put it in, they'd split it in half in with two larger Protestant areas so that there might only be one Catholic councillor in each ward where there would be like a Catholic ward, a predominantly Catholic ward of about... Yeah, basically nationalist ward gerrymandering. Of five. Gerrymandering is the term, yeah, uh, was going on. Then there was um, issuing with Catholics generally now I'm going to say Catholic and Protestant interchange here generally speaking in the city of Derry where he was from yeah. and I am calling it Derry by the way it was predominantly with Catholics and there are some sectarian things there as well involving the the orange men the orange order and the apprentice boys of Derry which I'll discuss in a moment but it is there was definitely at the time it was a lot of religious tension 
as not just nationalist versus unionist because there's you know people of multiple, multiple faith communities involved still. So in in particular in Derry, the the, the civil rights organisation Northern Ireland started there, and this was about peacefully protesting against the treatment that Catholics were getting there. They were not allowed to organise in large number. They had lost. They were getting discriminated against in housing. They had asked for McGee College in in the in the city. And this is the second largest city in Northern Ireland. Let, let's point out by a sizable margin. They were asking it to be made a university. Yeah. So that yeah. Belfast had Queen's University and there would be a university then in Derry. But they decided to build the University of Ulster, as it became, in a, in a tiny little, predominantly unionist town called Coleraine. Shocking. I wouldn't believe it. And McGee didn't get it. And this caused a lot of civil rights marches and protests um, as a result of this, because these citizens are arguing, well, we identify as Irish and we're Catholic generally, but we're like, well, if you're going to say that we're British subjects, then we want the same treatment as every other Englishman, well, Scotsman or Welshman would. And that's what they were saying. And their piece of protest was attacked by the RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, or the police force at the time, overwhelmingly Protestant. A lot of them were also involved in the Orange Order, which is a, a Protestant fraternal organisation. We think of it like the Freemasons, who like marching and wearing their bowler hats and their orange sashes on the 12th of July in commemoration of the uh, Battle of the Boyne when you know, a Protestant Dutch king came over and invaded the United Kingdom to get rid of the Catholic king. It's, we won't go into all of that. But <laughs> it's for a different podcast. It is for a different <laughs> podcast in history. But So John Hume was involved in all of these things, peacefully protesting, and he got involved in politics. And he, he wasn't in favour of the IRA, as we discussed before, in their yeah, struggle for freedom. He was all them. about peace, refusing to involve in violence. And after Northern Ireland's parliament was, was dissolved in 1972, too because the troubles had started the, the, the bloody Sunday in 1969 happened where 12 unarmed civilians marching through Derry peacefully were killed by paratroopers yeah. he murdered. actually didn't attend that he, he did the um, bloody Sunday one no he was at the previous week's one from sorry my, I apo- remember. My, my apologies and he, he knew correct. that the next one was going to turn violent yeah. if it had went on because yep. there was one, it wasn't at one, one of the beaches, and they were forced away by the. That's police. right. That's right. Yeah. Um, set my apologies, Stu. I was there's there's a lot of bits. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of this here. <laughs> and in fairness, I did spring it on you. you when did. I had a chance you to did. look at the documentary before we started. I I did study this for the leaving cert for, for my exam before college for history. We did we studied this in in detail. Um, which shows kind of how important this man was. Yeah. For the. It's it's worth kind of noting as well that he and a group of other people, uh, including Seamus Mallon, um, uh, John Devlin, I think, they set up a new political party in 1972, the the SDLP, the Social Democratic Labour Party, which was a nationalist party, which 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 I was arguing for, like the nationalist communities and predominantly Catholic communities in the north, but from kind of you know as you can say, from Social Democratic and Labour Party was a little more kind of left leaning, um, and what we discussed before, some of the IRA were a little bit communist <laughs> and socialist in that they were very much uh, affiliated at, at one time or another to the Labour Party in in down here in the south of Ireland. I probably shouldn't say the south of Ireland, talking about John Hume. <laughs> Uh, the Republic here, this part of the, the thing, and had nominal connections with the Labour Party in the United Kingdom. So, and it was all, and they, they were getting involved in an early peace agreement called Sunningdale, which was about getting, the very first time they talked about getting unionists, nationalists, and kind of the in between the alliance in, into kind of together. That fell apart because of Ian Paisley and a bunch of um, unionist sieges, basically. There's no nice way of saying it. But John stuck with his guns. He, 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 
kept trying to push to these compromise things of working with unionists, sticking to peace. And even through the 80s, when they tried to get another peace agreement through, which would be like have what we have today in the North, which is, you know, unionists and nationalists working together, that didn't go through due to unionist opposition again. And it's, it's really when you get to the 90s and the IRA have a ceasefire. Sinn Féin, who we said at war varying times, the political wing of the IRA, had gotten rid of some of the vestiges of their previous characteristics under previous issue when Jerry Adams took power and really were trying to make a, a movement for non-violence at least. But a lot of the unionists refused to negotiate with them. And it was John Hume really who said, look, I have been representing this nationalist community you know, to the United Kingdom, to the world, because I was willing to go to Parliament in in the United Kingdom, take the oath and take my seat there, even, you know, putting the old saying, I take this oath in order to represent my constituents and then swearing allegiance to the Queen, which was too much for Sinn Féin and a lot of other nationalists. But he got them to the table in in the 90s, 98, we get the Good Friday Agreement, the Belfast Agreement, where we finally had peace in Northern Ireland. We had everyone sitting at a table willing to work to each other. And himself and David Trimble, who was the leader of the, the Ulster Unionist Party, at the time their famous image of them standing on stage with Bono who we don't like Bono but we'll give Bono, we'll give Bono a pass on this Bono was there for no reason <laughs> and with their long struggle they had they managed to what won the Nobel Peace Prize for this it's worth yeah, saying I mean, and as he should have this he is should a, have. a huge conflict that he yeah. was able to, to temper down he became a deputy first minister of Northern Ireland sort of the joint Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, if you will, under this joint administration with the Unionists and Nationalists and the Alliance Party. And um, he retired in 2001, but still was still was very involved, was still involved in the European Parliament, still gave speeches everywhere, still was very passionate about going to America, telling the, the US congressman there's a lot more work to be done here and yeah, every I mean, time. That, that was one thing that I found very interesting was his connecting with America yeah. to, to get help. I mean, wasn't it uh, Kennedy's grandfather or grandson? I'm not sure. One of the Kennedy anyway who actually like sent him a telegram being like if you need me yeah send me an old telegram back and he did and he even met like jimmy carter who's alone absolutely oh jimmy I, <laughs> i'm starting to think that nothing Still building houses I'm, I'm starting to think that nothing is going to kill jimmy carter don't think anything could at this stage i think i don't like i honestly don't know who's going to who's going to blink first the queen or jimmy carter at this point <laughs> A good southern boy, um, Jimmy Carter, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it's just the American, Irish-Americans in particular taking uh, such a stance on it and helping out in so many ways I think to is, bring this to fruition. I think it's important to say as well that a lot of Irish-Americans did support the struggle as yeah. it was known back in the day like you had the I think now I don't want to get the name of the organisation incorrect so I shan't name them but there were a couple of organisations certainly in America which were set up by Irish Americans with a little bit of help from Irish people who were you know they'd go into the Irish pubs and the people whose like great grandmother was from County Cavan kind of thing and they'd yeah. chuck, chuck a, a few bob in a, in a bucket basically and that was going back to ostensibly the IRA for the armed struggle but John really kind of pushed against that being like no you can't just vote like these pointless resolutions through Congress saying you want to united Ireland as they've done quite regularly up to this point and still be allowing your constituents to chuck money to what was a terrorist organisation at the yeah. time I don't make any qualms about saying that and using the what he saw with the civil rights movement in the United States and Martin Luther King was an inspiration yeah. to him and the funny saying. thing is that at the same time I think 
in a lot of the things that I've read, the civil rights movement was also inspired by the struggles it was. in the North as well. So it there was kind of this this coat. Uh, it's a inspiration. bit of it's a bit of both, really. You, you can kind of talk about what and in, which inspired which, and I think definitely there was inspiration in you know. 65 kind of onwards yeah. from the the US civil rights movement I think a lot of protest peaceful protest comes from Mahatma Gandhi yeah and things like that but Gandhi's main thing about doing hunger strikes comes from an Irish Republican in the 1920s uh I'm gonna, I'm gonna Thomas McSweeney I was gonna say Thomas McCurtain but he was a Lord IRA uh, well Sinn Féin Lord Mayor of Cork during the War of Independence and he was imprisoned you know for just you know he was elected rightfully Lord Mayor of Cork and he protested against the British burning cork to the ground, even though the British said we did it ourselves. But I don't. Yeah, I don't. Know. I, I don't know how we did that, Stu. But Look, unless uh, we were doing it for the insurance, there's no way we're burning down our own city. He's <laughs> out there with the petrol. It's like just a big bus full of Limerick lads coming down to burn cork. It's like no, no, we're we're uh, we're here on holidays. We didn't yeah. burn anything. He he went on hunger strike and passed away, and it was one of the largest ever funeral cortages from from London to Cork, and it was a huge movement. It, it got worldwide attention to Ireland, along with the execution of Kevin Barry as well. And it, it, it Gandhi was, I believe, in London, and he saw this, and that inspired him, which in turn inspired a lot of other peaceful things here. So there's this whole peaceful resistance to yeah. British rule and what what have you has always been there, but I think John Hume just took it to the next level, yeah, and I more important. You, you you can he was voted our greatest living Irishman a couple of years ago and he was rightfully seen though as the greatest person certainly of the 20th and 21st century in, in this island and you can't take away from the fact that without him we probably wouldn't have had the peace agreement that we have in the yeah, north I mean, for most, cannot, that cannot be overstated yeah, for most of our lives I mean I'm 27 Rob you're 26 27. Oh, you're 27 already? Yeah. I can't remember. I'm going to cut that one out. You'll never know. <laughs> I get confused sometimes. Either way, most of our <laughs> lives, since we were about, what, six, we've had... We've, yeah, we've had we've had a, a peace in there. country yeah. and peaceful island, I should say. Um, and a lot of that, just kind of almost tie into the movie a bit, is that kind of American relationship yeah. that there is with Ireland. Because there's a common bond in the fight. In Let's not say the fight. The struggle against British rule. Yes. Which there is a lot of between us. We both have that uh, that in common. We do, and I think there's a bit of a brotherhood there. Almost, we, you know, Irish people went to America, and some of them came back. As this movie seg- segue nicely yeah. in, into the movie, and that is an important theme. But certainly, this wouldn't have been done without uh, people like, even to his credit, Ronald Reagan like, push, pushing their Jimmy Carter, JFK, and Bill Clinton in particular, who did did a, a lot of work in getting this through, along with John Major and. Like, as much as I dislike Tony Blair for other reasons and Bertie Ahern as well, I have to credit both of them for getting this good, the Good Friday Agreement through yeah. and for John Bruton as well and previous Tishi to helping it go through as well. But yeah, so I think in yeah. summary, anyway, if you don't know a lot about John Hume, go onto YouTube, find a few documentaries. There are a ton because he's done a lot in his storied career. I, I, and, I, uh, I think as well, it, it, if I just say something briefly at the end, uh, John passed away last week at the age of about 82. Now, he had Alzheimer's for the last few years, and I, I personally know from my own grandfather how difficult it is sometimes to care for someone with Alzheimer's and how, you know, not all of your mind goes at times. You can still remember the past, and I've read some wonderful stories about John who would just kind of walk around Derry when he was at the start of the, the illness, and he could 
talk about the past, no problem. And he'd talk about all the old names of streets and everything else. And people would, people would mind him. No one would ever, like, nothing would ever happen to him because he always had about five or six people walking with him. I think there was a great quote from it was that John looked after the people of Derry for decades and now it's our turn to look after him. And I think that kind of sums it up there. That was... Yeah, and uh, we'll uh, definitely be having a, a point in his honour tonight anyway. We certainly will. Um, John uh, was quite possibly the greatest ever Irishman. I think it's very important yeah. to say. And it's someone to be very proud of. But... So, uh, Rest in peace. Exactly. And, uh, now we'll yeah, yeah, go on to probably. something a little bit more upbeat in <laughs> Quiet Man. So this is the movie of uh, an uh, Irish-American who decides to come back to his family home that his mm-hmm. grandparent or his mother had left yes. so long ago. And uh, he's clearly a very rich man at this point. I don't know. They, they don't really address it, but he just kind of buys whatever he wants. Yeah. But uh, uh, while there, he sees a, a lovely Irish lass. And uh, it's kind of the story of him trying to marry her and uh, everything that goes along with it. Yeah. And it, it, I, I guess in a sense, it is, a, I don't want to say the, the classic story, but it is, you, you you know, stranger kind of comes in and meets the local lass. And it's, a, it, it's not an uncommon trope in a lot of movies and literature and all that. Yeah, so it's directed by John Ford, who has an astonishing 147 director credits. A very, very famous director. I mean, I mean I, a fantastic director. Yeah, uh, he's done The Likes of the Grapes of Wrath, and actually The Play on the Stars, which is uh, another Irish play well, by my, Sean O'Casey. My very favourite play, actually, as uh, Steve would know. Yeah, I, I, I love Sean O'Casey's work. I think we both had to read it for a secondary school in our day. I actually live not too... When I'm in Dublin, I my... I don't live terribly far from his birthplace, and that is actually being turned into, I believe, a museum. Is what they're I discussing. I imagine about. so. I mean, it's a se- seminal. Like if you're, if you want to kind of get an opinion of what Dublin is like, literally in this time frame, uh, definitely read the Plough and the Star, Shadow of a Gunman. Uh, fantastic, fantastic writer. Yeah, we might have to do that movie at some point. Oh, well, so I'd, I'd recommend they did a, a play of it recently that was featured on RTE where they had. It shot in the place in Dublin where oh, it originally it. was yeah. the north, and they had locals actually acting the parts, and it was fantastic performance. I must say. Well, then we'll have to do that at some point. Put it on the list. <laughs> Absolutely. If only we had someone to put it on the list for us, because <laughs> we'll forget. <laughs> Oh, uh, I won't forget. Then the main star is, of course, John Wayne himself mm-hmm. as Sean Thornton. Uh, he's best known for being in every western ever made. Yeah. It's uh, it's odd though that the. They got a Mongolian to play uh, an Irish-American. Oh, dear. I feel that, you know, his Genghis Khan was was not one of his uh, better film roles, I don't think, Stu. I, I prefer to think him of... But him, he's like, such a natural Mongolian. <laughs> I, I think I, I think of John Wayne. I watch for the, the Quiet Man. Uh, you know him as Rooster Coburn in um, what's that film? His name I keep forgetting. You know the other one I mean. Uh, in Sean the Sands of Iwo Jima. Yeah, nice, nice that one. Yeah. So it's a pretty much every western ever made, and then one where he played a Mongolian for some reason. So then we have Irish-born Maureen O'Hara. Mm-hmm. who plays Mary-Kate Danaher, who's John Wayne's love interest. Uh, so she was born in Ranelagh in Dublin. Very nice part of Dublin. Uh, she was actually in the original Miracle on 34th Street. She was. I've seen that film several times. And The Parent Trap. Yeah. So <laughs> she had a very storied career. I, think, I believe that this was actually her favourite movie she's ever done. Yeah, she's talked about it. She only didn't die too long ago, wasn't it? Yeah, I think she was actually, from what I read, listening to the film score as she passed away, which is quite sweet. That yeah. She loved this film so much because it was actually kind of a passion project, really, between it really herself and between John Ford. Ford and Wayne. Yeah. And, and Maureen O'Hara as well. He They agreed, like, on a handshake uh, yeah. to that she would help him out with this and star because she was really one of the first actual Irish kind of stars in Hollywood because she, you know, Maureen O'Hara was Irish. She yeah. wasn't Irish American like John Ford was. 
she was actually Irish and, you know, played a good part. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about later how that actually helped the performance and things like that. But a few nice bits and bobs I can yeah. talk about that. So then we have Barry Fitzgerald as Micheline Og Flynn. Yep. Uh, so he's also Dublin born. Uh, I didn't see anything very familiar that he was in. But uh, he was great. Uh, <laughs> oh, I loved him. He was very, he was he very kinda, much that. <laughs> he's probably the instigator for that kind of character. You see it with Darby O'Gill is very similar as yeah. well. That kind of the the wizened old Irish man. It's very much shrunken down. And <laughs> if if um, I'm a big, my other favorite Irish playwright after uh, Sean O'Casey is John B. Keane, and there's a character, uh, Tricky Dicky uh, Richard O'Neill, who's the matchmaker in the, in the matchmaker and yeah. the other pieces he's done and. This is, I think, definitely where a lot of the inspiration for the two of them came from. It's like, I can't remember which was quite first, but they're very similar. It's like that old matchmaker kind of, oh, kind of Irishman. It, 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 it's a trope yeah. almost in certain Irish stories, but very genuine, I think, as well. Yeah, and the man can drink. I mean, oh, he sure can. Where <laughs> yeah. leave the battle? I just love it. The horse, the horse always stops inside <laughs> yeah. the pub. Yeah. Oh, it was brilliant. And then the last kind of major figure then is Victor McLagan as Will Danaher who is Mary Kate's brother in this which yes. is strange there's quite quite a quite an age gap there clearly yeah i think it was like 30 years or something between well i believe between the two actors marina hara was in her 30s uh, when she shot this and he was 64 yeah so pretty so. much about 30 years and it was weird cuz one of my notes is literally uh the daughter wife kind of situation again and then i just went back and scratched it out road and sister because <laughs> i was proven wrong cause it's it just it, it it's weird I think that they chose that when being her daughter would kind of have played the same ish. I can kind of see that. I I suppose I don't know. I mean, I I might I'll, I'll talk a little bit of my family history and uh, when you're doing the review because there are relevant points to it specifically. Right. But I mean, I did have uh, my great grandfather was married twice because his first wife died when they were quite young, so he did have I say children from two wives, and there was a bit of an age gap, so not that big. Yeah, but I, I suppose in one sense Ireland, it wouldn't be so uncommon. There's, there's yeah. not a. It I wouldn't surprise. I think such an age gap. I think there's like there's definitely an age gap between the two of them, but I think it's being played as it might be about ten or a little more years. I don't think it's being portrayed as 30-odd years. So I, I, I'm i willing to accept that. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it was her uncle, I'd be like, okay. But yeah, father would have kind of just made a bit more sense. But yeah. I suppose it doesn't really matter too much. But this guy, what a, a giant of a man. I thought it looked, He's just, huge. He just looks like Shrek. He really has that build. Like, if, if, if they had decided to do some kind of live-action Shrek in this yeah. time, there's your guy. Just paint him green and I, watch him go. Because, like, John Wayne was not a small man. Oh yeah, he was a big fan. He's bigger. I think he even he's, says it in the he's movie. Bigger. He's like six three or six four or something. And like he says, I think six 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 and like fourth or something like that. I think something mad, yeah. yeah. But this guy's bigger than him, and not just taller, like bulkier. Like I could fully think that he's able to like because I think when I saw because he first comes in in a silhouette, yeah. And uh, we're kind of already going into spoiler free, so we'll just continue yeah. with that. Uh, you just kind of see him in the door frame, and you can't actually see, yeah. him, But his outline and like. I thought it was like the guy who plays Jaws and James Bond. Oh, Richard, like, Richard Keel. <laughs> just had like that massive man look, you know, like the hands that could just crush your face yeah. with one hand. It's it's kind of interesting almost that he isn't like um, even a farmer or something, because you could definitely see him being a farmer and like, you know, lifting yeah, donkeys just, out of ditches. It's just like kind the of kind of way that yeah. people who do that get that 
large but, but I genetics. think he's maybe perhaps a gentleman like they have a nice house but he, he seems yeah, to be he's, he's he, from the UK anyway yeah he's I uh, know he is yeah but uh, it was interesting anyway though. big fella yeah huge uh, so yeah I suppose we're pretty much in uh, the spoiler free part anyway so one thing that was very jarring and I think actually John Wayne didn't like it as well is the onset versus in Ireland scenes? Yes, the cutting was. It's it's a bit quite it's a bit off. Like they did shoot this on in in Ireland in Con County Mayo primarily. Yeah. There are bits that the Castlehaven railway station was shot near Tume in Galway. It is so there is a heritage line, I believe. Yeah, a lot of the places. Yeah. In this are still there. Well, I like there's no place called there is a place called Inishree, the Lake Isle of Inishree, from William Butler Yeats' famous poem. But this was shot in Con County Mayo. It wasn't shot there at all. And funny enough, Yeats' house is actually. Is used as one of the castle locations. Oh, the right, yeah. So I, I think that there, I think that was like a little nod and a wink um, to that as well. But um, yeah, I, I think the, the outside settings are certainly very accurate. Oh yeah, I mean, the, like the they found a, are, a beautiful spot in Ireland to shoot. Really, I think to some kind of nineteen twenties Ireland, it's exactly spot on because this was shot in like the 1950, 1951 Yeah, and it hasn't really changed much in thirty years. Like, but I think that's why they they did pick Con County Mayo because we said this before as well. There's certain places out in the country that are a bit lost in time. And yeah, it, it works which perfectly. Is, which is what you want in a way. Hmm. It kind of gives that heritage of the the island. Yeah. Um, I did find it funny though. The actual the town itself looked very similar to the town in Derby O'Gill. It did. <laughs> and but... it, it it could have been that Disney used that as a a reference image for the town because obviously that town yeah. was on a soundstage rather than being an actual place. I but... think that it sort of says something about the general layout of towns in kind of the west of Ireland. Yeah, and it, it they're they're all not terribly dissimilar. And I think when you when he gets to the the, the bridges of Mam Mam across where he's coming into the the town, he just looks down and sees like the churches and all that there. That's really beautiful shot. That's really called the the Quiet Man Bridge now. I think yeah. is what it's called. Um, but that just sums up what kind of that part of rural Ireland is like in, in Mayo or even like Galway or Clare or whatever. It's, it, a lot of places do look like that, but I think they found arguably the best from a, that kind of perspective. But I think it was beautifully shot and I think it's yeah. a wonderful little place. But then obviously the, just when it goes to say them being on a, a carriage and stuff yeah. at times, then you have the, the, whatever, the projected screen. The rear projection, yeah. It just doesn't look good. It, it's, it's. Even the, the lighting is bad. And obviously like we're complaining about the, this in 2020 where we have cgi that can make anything possible so i mean maybe at the time it was okay i mean as i said john yeah. wayne did complain about it so it mightn't have been as perfect as some other movies had been you see maybe it's just me but there's plenty of like bits where they are on horses and on on the carts yeah. and on the, the jaunting cars and it's on location like as they're going through crowds i don't see why you like maybe it was just impractical to like mount a camera on it well yeah i mean you yeah, have size to, it would be completely impractical to do that back then just having a massive camera and probably got a roll in the film yeah as it goes but uh, yeah it is noticeable but i don't i don't think it distracts from the story too much of course not i mean you know you, you're watching films in this time you period, expect it's, yeah it's a fun. certain level of that it was just striking at times and since john wayne himself noted it uh, i thought it was something to bring up the thing about this film is that it goes in a lot of direction it does it it's definitely tries a lot of ideas i think the way i was trying to describe it in my own head was that it's the field which is another great irish movie yep. mixed with romeo and juliet yep and rambo near the end I, <laughs> yes <laughs> which, i think like you'd never expect it to mix these three movies but they did and it kind of works I think that it does work and it, it's very much the field is um, 
a John B. Keane play yeah. and it's it's a very similar kind of plot. We might probably review that film at some point actually. Yeah, of course. To, I, field, I want, just, but I mean, it's, without it, going into too much detail, it's a guy a, buys a field. An American comes over, buys a field, there's a dispute with the other guy. Um, they actually inserted the love interest into the film a little bit more. Yeah. The film is not as faithful to the, the original play, I would say. Well, it's say, not a, but, that long of a play, I don't think, from what I remember. Compared it's, to translating it to it's a movie, it's uh, three acts, if I remember correctly. But it, I quite enjoy it as well. But um, it uh, it does follow a similar kind of plot line. But it's I like what they kind of do with it. But it, it I think a lot of it in, is a bit perhaps outdated. But that's and it's set in 1920s Ireland, being shot in the 1950s in Ireland. So yeah. I suppose these old concepts of like dowries and your honour and all that, it's a bit, it doesn't reflect as well because it's set 100 years ago from, from now. But um, at the time, it would have still been accurate. It would have been a living memory for everyone. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's just, it is a, a funny kind of combination of movies in that way. And we'll we'll get into more about why that is in spoilers. Uh, one thing that I noticed is that uh, there are power lines in one of the shots. <laughs> yeah, now I... When they're coming into one of the... There, there the is. main town, Castle Town, I think. Yeah, that's that wouldn't have entirely been the case back then. I, I know this because my grandfather was involved in the rural electrification, yeah. and they, I'll tell you, they didn't have electricity out there at the time. We didn't yeah. really until really the 1920s, later 1920s when we were... Well, it doesn't say specifically when this is set. It, it's certainly yeah. after independence, so it's probably... Sure. It's between about 1922 and probably 1928 or something like that, by the sense yeah. of... Yeah. Um, but then the next scene, it kind of... It's all better because they have a big sign for Lion's Tea. <laughs> they do. <laughs> there's, there's, quite a, there's quite a nice, these little things. I know they have one for, like, uh, Will's... Uh, gold flakes, oh, yeah, yeah, cigarettes yeah, on, as well. It's just on the train, which is which I think is is quite accurate for the time as well. And the whole thing of the train being delayed for four hours because of the Mayo, uh, oh, yeah, Mayo the plane. or whatever. Uh, the whole curse of the Mayo team is something else we, we won't get into today. <laughs> but uh, I thought that was quite accurate. And the, the same things with that virus train, particularly rural, when before we had like unified train services it was um, they were notably unreliable Percy French had a famous song from the West Clare they're not much better now they're actually <laughs> one time 98% of the time Stu it's what like, about I'll, that 2% Rob I'll have you know I'm a big train spotter and I will not take disparagement here <laughs> or anything incorrect in this air Rob's mom is outside is that going to work? Either? Yeah, it could be great. We'll cut that. No, we won't. Never cut anything, Rob. That's what I always say. Keep the trash in with everything else. Because <laughs> it's all trash anyway. So we'll... Um, we'll uh, the fucking so I suppose the last uh, kind of big thing to talk about that isn't really a spoiler is the talking Irish. Which I quite liked, I, I must say. And um, it's it, it's good that Marina Hara, who actually is Irish, did this because she can speak it. And I think more importantly, actually speaks the correct dialect as well, Stu. I, I didn't notice any issues of that, did you? Yeah, no, like, I mean, I'm not great with the old Irish myself and only caught a few of the words, but those words I understood. So, yes, I mean, she, what she says is, um, I had this written down, Nir lig meam amar keila isiach malaba lama rare, a queer of era cola. So basically what she's saying is, Father, I didn't sleep in bed with my husband last night. He slept in uh, by the window in a... She's like trying to work out how to put sleeping bag into Irish because it it's a very alien concept. Yeah, to I mean, that, that is people. pointed out a couple of times in the movie that they just don't understand why you'd need a sleeping bag. Yeah, so she's trying to translate it and then the priest doesn't. But she basically just says, I couldn't sleep with him in the bed last night and he slept by there. And then he starts giving out. He's like, oh, you can't do that. Then the salmon comes and saves the day. Oh, yeah. Uh, we'll get into the salmon. 
Uh, so I suppose we'll give our reviews and then we'll jump into spoilers because there's a lot of this movie and not a lot of it can be said without spoiling. Yeah. So uh, what do you think, Rob? Crock of gold. Really enjoyed this film. Um, I've seen this multiple times and I think it's possibly John Wayne's best film. Definitely Marina O'Hara's best film. I'd go as far as saying possibly John Ford's best work as well. It's beautifully shot. I love the soundtrack to this as well. It's beautiful. I really, really enjoyed this film. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'd have to give it a crock of gold as well. I didn't enjoy everything. I think I was kind of surprised when it went on as long as it will I'll discuss that a little bit later yeah. I know there's some trivia about there that is, there is. but uh, it was kind of as I said just with the, the kind of the three different kind of plots with the field Romeo and Juliet and Rambo kind of coming in it felt a little muddled but overall it, it was a good story and you get to go through it and obviously we're talking about a time when movies weren't action in your face all the time so a slower pace works yeah. for that for that particular time period I think it did maybe go a bit longer and there could have been bits that were could have been cut but I think it what makes up for it is just how well it was shot and particularly how beautiful the countryside is and just how I think excellent some of the shots there I, I can't really credit yeah, I mean, John Ford enough so I think it kind of makes it, up for it to a certain a, extent in a weird thought I know they didn't really do this at the time but would it have been an interesting thing for them to do it as a sequel where this oh the, he's like the, the boxer thing first in the well first no as, as in even up to the midway point okay and then have everything after that just as a thought because okay, it, interesting. it seemed like I was surprised okay we're just going to go into spoilers now and we'll continue from there yep so if you haven't seen it, go watch it and then come back or get it spoiled because it's yeah. like a 70-year-old movie at this point. Uh, so just, I was kind of surprised when the wedding happened at like the hour mark. Yeah, that is. Because I felt, is I, I was like, you know, this is going to be, the, you know, the, the happy ending and everything's going to be fine, which is probably partly just because that's how movies go now. Hmm. But it was just like, oh no, I have like an hour and 10 minutes left in this movie. What the fuck is going to happen next? In, in it, it is kind of it. It's like, it, it almost, the courting almost happens so quickly that you're you're yeah. kind of like looking at the runs and like, where is this going to go? But I, I, I think you know the conflict between Sean and Will is going to happen and sure. they're going to have a proper scrap like. Yeah, there are kind of seeds of there's seeds of that. Who Trooper Thorn is. Yeah, like his Thorn former is. boxing thing. Yeah. But it, it, there's a lot there that isn't dealt with by then. And then like, withholding the dowry then and all these other things. And it, it, it does kind of feel that maybe that should have almost happened before the wedding. And everything else, like the, maybe the ending in the film should be the wedding instead of. I do, I do like the ending of the film where she yeah, whispers something in and they run off. I think that is quite nice, and how it shows you all the townspeople and they they trick the Protestants. <laughs> we'll talk about that later, but I I can kind of those see why those cut up. <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about that, but. Um, there, it's an interesting choice. I think you could have ended the film like with them going off in the jaunting car, getting married instead of Will Danaher and the widow. Yeah. Kind of with their, if I that was their wedding thing that would have worked as well. I think the, the best way to put my point is if they were to remake this film now, which I don't think they should because it was a very good movie in its own right, but you know, that's what Hollywood does now. They just take old stuff and redo it. They would probably stretch out the stuff in the beginning of the first act, say. Yeah. And then have the wedding be the ending of the of the movie and then have a second movie where everything after that takes place yeah i, I think that's fair enough because it, but... it's it almost as i said it seems like an ending point but then there's another hour left and you're like holy shit yeah i mean i don't really i think it might have been a thing at the time i i i just don't really think can't think of another film as a bit like that even like something like casablanca which was a bit yeah. older than this didn't really but even have like this were there a lot of two hour plus movies i, I know there. 
even generally two hours is about standard really because just you know reels of film and all that yeah. two reels of film was standard so I, I you know beyond that I'm not really too sure right so what else have we got for well okay, we'll, we'll kind of go from the start say yeah so he gets in uh, on the train and uh, he starts asking for directions and he gets the most Irish response everyone offers every con- consolation direction it's like well you know you want to go down this way and if you're looking for the salmon or the trout you have to go over here and it's like that's exactly what happens in Ireland because yeah. <laughs> everyone has their own specific way of getting somewhere and I and I and, and I just all buttoning. I feel that was very accurate and very true and particularly for a rural thing you know yeah. you ask directions there they'll they'll it, it's not very much go down this road and it's all like go take a left there and then take the next left and go by Paddy's farm there. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How do you look yeah. after you forget last again? You know, kind yeah, of you've, you've, you've forgotten everything because they've gone into a rambling spiel in the meantime about something yeah. completely different. Uh, and then we get the uh, introduction of Michelin where he just kind of walks up and steals his bags, which I thought what is what was happening. Yeah. <laughs> he just takes them and walks off. It's a choice, but I, I think part of him probably did recognise him. You'd almost well, be no, like... Well, I mean, it was, a, it was a cute thing where he reveals later on. So he gets on the, the horse and they go down along or on the cart I should say and uh, he's looking at his old family house and he says he reveals himself yeah. to Michelin and he's like oh my god it's you and all that um, I, I, just a couple of things that I could say Thornton is an Irish name certainly yeah. generally would be seen as more of a Protestant name but you know I love Catholic Thorntons as well so that's fine uh, but Michelin now, this is this is a minor nitpicky thing, but uh, he's obviously called Michelin or Michelino, Michael Michael Oak because it generates a diminutive form. So like if your father was called Michael and you were also called Michael or Michal, the Irish version of it, instead of like Michael Senior, Michael Junior, it's only Michael and then Michael Oak, little Michael. Yeah, is, is quite a common thing in certain parts of the country. But Michelin Oak would is like. Um, modifier Michaeline is like uh, Ian on the end of the name is kind of diminutive as well it's like it young, small though yeah it be young, Mike, young small Michael yeah but it, it almost says that it's it will be kind of one or the other it, it's kind of like dub, it's like saying like Michael Junior Junior I suppose but I almost mean, it's a minor nitpicking thing I, I don't just think it's it even was, really no it's not really much. it's, it's not really Michaeline. it's just not really I, I would have thought Michaeline or or Michael Ogue. It's just a minor nitpicking thing, but and perhaps I'm wrong there, but I, it just stood out to me. But he's a very lovable character, I don't yeah. care. So then he goes off and he buys his family home for a thousand pounds. I did the conversions on this, by the way. Okay, go on. So I think it's it's given as the, the land is worth about 300 pounds and he goes it for a thousand pounds. So 
Making the assumption that this was Irish pounds, which at the time were pegged to British pounds, it doesn't make a difference at the time. Right. Uh, using the inflation and conversion factors and everything else, it, it approximates to in British pounds today to be uh, for forty four thousand nine hundred ninety nine pounds, which if you convert to euros at the present exchange rate, uh, sixty four thousand nine hundred and fifty four euros. That pretty good, I suppose. I mean, I don't get a house in Ireland for that much these days, too. Absolutely, Jesus, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, it is a thatched cottage, so not a exactly the most modern, so luxurious if, home. But I, I think we take it. <laughs> so if I could get something, I don't care what state it's in. If I could get a house for that cheap in Dublin, I'd be living there, right? Now. <laughs> like we all would. They could start renting it out to hipsters. Or... <laughs> it's like can Marino you know, Harry cook my dinner? I get that house as well. <laughs> Oh my god! But no, so that that's um, yeah. it would have been quite a lot of money at the time. Yeah, you really get like state that that's a lot of money. Um, he's obviously like he probably is a millionaire because oh he's a millionaire like all well, he's been, he was a boxer and that yeah. so he's clearly made his fortune from that. But it's and certainly a man. Yeah, <laughs> which we'll get into more later on. But it happens. But just I think it's worth saying like he is obviously very well off if he can afford to pay that much because yeah. that, that would be more money than most people would see in like a couple of years yeah it's never really addressed but he just seems to have enough money to do whatever he wants like did he just bring a suitcase full of like dollar bills or something because that's a ridiculous amount of money I suppose the thing he should have checked is what the conversion rate between dollars and pounds would have been at the time that's a fair point, actually. I, I, I think no. Well, certainly sterling would have been stronger than dollars at the time. I would have thought. We'll do it another time. <laughs> Either way, yeah. Um, just as an interesting aside, uh, one thing I did like is the the characterization of Sean's uh, father being sent to a penal column. I thought the grandfather was sent was to a penal column, and the father died in the town. That's why the mother left to America. Possibly, I, not. I thought maybe, that's maybe what it was. I'm mistaking it, but just. Because that is another part of our history. Transportation uh, to Australia. Yeah, yeah, so if you're Australian, you're probably related to us because everyone over there, (laughs) a lot of them are Irish. Yeah, it was like if you committed a crime that didn't immediately result in a hanging, you could be just sent to penal servitude. You'd be sent to Australia and just work there you know and then yeah. eventually you might come back and you know it's it's, it's in the, the song The Fields of Athen right Michael they're taking you away if you told Trevelyan's corn now you must live in Botany Bay so yeah so it's a it's nice to have that kind of historical accuracy in, in it I suppose uh, one thing I found really funny was the first time that Mary Kate sees Sean she looks like she's about to vomit for some reason yeah that's an odd choice and I don't know why I mean, she seems startled yeah, not even by just, it but... just like She's just disgusted by the look of him for some reason. Because I think I think like you're gonna get the point across. The other thing, she's beautiful and more Marina Harris, so she's yeah. she's gorgeous. And John Mayne isn't a bad looking chap. I think he's he's very much kind of your rugged American kind of a look. Yeah. So I think I think it's kind of it's Mon- very much rugged the, Mongolian. Rob, get it right. Uh, uh, racist. I I think it's certainly she's certainly a better cut than the local fellas in the village <laughs> by the by the look of things. Yeah. Um, on the local fellas in the village, it was only at the end of the film that I realised those two lads were IRA. It's yeah. never brought up. And then near the end, it's like, it's touched. Oh, were the IRA in on this? It's like, where did this come from? It's touched a little bit in the pub at the start. I think that... Because um, I know they're looking through his bags with McLean. Yeah, but I, I think McLean says, mentions them about being in the IRA then. Because I think they, cause they refer to him as Commandant. Oh and, yes, and then he says, "Oh, the war is over now, boys. For now, the struggle is over now." Because so this, so it's it's like this would have been just after the independence. But I presume they must have been like anti-treaty IRA then, because I have no idea. But... Well, because because they were pro-treaty, they'd be they would be they would be guardie or they'd be in the army. They I presume these are just and they seem young enough as well. So they. It, 
they must have been like fairly young when they were fighting yeah. the Brits. I assume and... for the movie they just wanted two IRA lads in there. Yeah. But it just it just caught me off guard. Obviously I missed something earlier on. But yeah. It's just like at the very end they get these this characterization they haven't had the whole time where it's like, oh they're in the IRA, okay. <laughs> uh, I was like, oh it's like they, we burn your house. <laughs> 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 Well, as I'm thinking, it's interesting as well, because there's clearly, like, the, the widow, like, she's, I presume she's, like, Anglo-Irish ascendancy, like, you know. Probably, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, but why didn't you burn out her house? Wouldn't that be, isn't that, like, literally what the IRA did to the state homes during the War of Independence and even our civil war was just like, well, we better start burning the Brits out then. Yeah, it, like, obviously it's just a movie and so it's hard to know everything that was going on with it. They mightn't have known or understood. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I get it as a choice. I, I do get you that it is, a, it is a bit jarring, even when he... I, I kind of like how make it that he's like the common man because like yeah. he'd, he'd be... He looks like he'd... he'd <laughs> he would have been. He would have seen a lot in his day. It, lo- it looks like he was almost like, not even like even in the rab, like going back to like the volunteers. You could have, cause he was like, oh, I was in the one of the original Venians. I <laughs> <laughs> fought with a Donovan Rasa. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and another thing, of course, is the use of thatched houses in itself which this movie probably helped keep them around I think so I mean it's I think we know that there's still thatched cottages I mean if you ask me about a thatched cottage my first thought would be Adair County Limerick they still have their yeah. famous for having kind of silver thatched cottages but um, it's not a million miles off I think uh, certainly for when it's set in 1920s Ireland that's not uncommon I, oh, I, I, I think I think that's actually completely fine I don't take any issue with that and uh, yeah, no it's just it, it's lovely to see it yeah and uh, obviously they do a really good job refurbishing it in the movie yep. then and uh, they do look lovely when they're all tacked up and painted right and I think it's I think it's really nice though when he, when they do go to the, the house and just how it's run down but clearly he's like oh the fire is on and he's trying to cause yeah that was, he's, he's that was that was weird because <laughs> I was just like is she hiding in the shadows in the room because the way it's shot you're just like yeah it's hard to tell where she is it looks like she's just and like then he just hiding behind the curtain yeah and then he just breaks yeah. The glass window of his own house. Which is weird, because, like, but there's a massive storm. You're going to have to fix that, mate. Yeah, and then she tries to run out, and then they kiss. Yeah, which is a bit, you know... Yeah, I mean, look, we know it was a different time. We can't excuse it. I think there, I, I, there's, I read an interesting piece actually uh, from a New Jersey newspaper and I was looking this up and it, it's specifically about this film in the, in the Me Too times is what it says. Right. And I had a read of it. I, I think it's fair enough. Like the bits where he's like dragging her through fields at the end is a bit. Yeah, that got a bit yeah, much. It got a bit much. much. However, I, mean, I think it's, it is worth saying that, um, she is a very strong female. And I think... Oh, yeah, willfully, might say. Yeah, and I, I think that it's... The piece actually described her as a proto-feminist, and I can see that to a certain extent. Like, she's very much in charge of the household. Yeah. In, in a sense, she's, like, in charge of running. She's able to look after herself, look after the sheep. She says, I have a temper, and she's no qualms of, like, hitting, yeah. hitting Sean or hitting her brother. But ultimately, you know, the patriarchal structures, like she has to get the dowry and all that. But at the same time, she's more than capable of looking after herself. And I, and I think she's not a too weak a female, the kind of archetype like you see in something like Casablanca, for example, where it's like you're a French freedom fighter and you're kind of, you know, fawning yeah. over two men and kind of thing. Where, but I think yeah, Mary I mean, Kate is quite a strong female character, I would have said. Yeah, it is hard to watch it in a way. I mean... From what I read, they did kind of enjoy doing it at the time. They were playing yeah. pranks and stuff, kicking sheep shit into the you know, her way. Even like when when the woman goes up and says, and here's, <laughs> yeah, the, here's, here's the stick to <laughs> <laughs> That hasn't that was, aged well. That like, hasn't aged that was, well. 
a bit like, oh god, but at the same time it was a little funny, just because of how weird it was to do. Yeah. But, uh... I, I think you could clearly tell, like, they were having a bit of crack shooting this, but... Yeah, but, like, you can, like, obviously there's no, ex- like, you wouldn't do that to someone today, but you can see no. how he was, he wasn't doing it in a way where he was, like, gonna take her home and beat the shit out of her. He was doing it, like, look... I made this vow that I would never box another person. You're making me break that. I'm going to do it for you, but yeah. come with me. Yeah. It, there, it, like it, it's it's hard. I wouldn't be excusing it, but there is some weird 1950s logic to it. it. it, it it's the whole thing of this was shot in the 50s and then set in 1920s Ireland. So there's obviously a perception of what right. There are plenty of Irish people there yeah. and they didn't exactly object to this. So it, even like it was, the whole thing was like, well, what is a house home without a woman? You yeah. have like the two women in the one house kind of thing. Yeah. Which is dated to say the least of things. But I, like I said, you can't excuse this for just no. just being time days but we've moved past that now but I, I think you have to view certain films through a lens of when it was set yeah. and you know this is set 100 years ago or possibly 100 years ago and th- this is filmed over 70 years ago so values and things change over time I don't think it was an inaccurate portrayal overall of rural Ireland at the time I think it, it very much was really in, in rural parts much longer than it was in some of the larger towns and cities here where you know the, the man was very much in charge and he would be trying to to you know go go to the the, the, the other father or the, the brother or whoever is in charge basically he's like I'd like to like to marry your sister there he's like I watch yeah because you know it's like we say the whole thing in this country like oh you want to marry someone you get the bit of land like, oh, you better, oh yeah the road frontage the road frontage or like oh they, they have a few acres there and it's like the whole thing where uh, it's like just oh you didn't say you had land now kind of a thing yeah it's, I think yeah. Uh, I think we'll definitely do a uniquely Irish on matchmaking but I think we should talk about it briefly because it is yeah. still to this day a big tradition in Ireland I've I kind of touched a little bit on earlier that John B. Keane has a, a it's it's actually not a play really there, there's a play been made of it it's originally in his letters collections a series of letters being used as a story device but there's one about the matchmaker and him trying to yeah. set up on he's like this he has a widow who keeps he keeps setting up people who keep dying on the honeymoon night <laughs> <laughs> and then he has one uh, like Anglo-Irish fellow who's a bit a bit you know a bit dirty and other people like that and it, it's quite interesting but it's this whole thing of uh, Liston Varna they have the famous matchmaking yeah, festival every September isn't it yes not this year though well obviously <laughs> yeah and I, and, I, and I will note Liston Varna they, they modernise they now do same sex and they do As everything they I mean I love that there was a great interview with the matchmaker and he was just there like this I'll tell you you tell me what you're looking for and I'll find them <laughs> I mean, clearly this, this old Irish fella just going I don't care if it's two women or two men or a man, man or two woman women. or sheep I'll find it <laughs> and they keep going that's the Ross Common matchmaker you want there <laughs> but it's it's kind of well, yeah, um, like it, like it's hard to find a lot of information I was trying to look up to see how matchmaking was back then compared to what it is now it, it's kind but, of you know it, it, I, I suppose like back in the day in kind of Ireland, if you wanted to, the kind of goal was just get marry someone, have kids, and like look after yeah. the farm you're in there, look after the whatever. And but you would have had the thing like chaperones and that. Absolutely, so been yeah, like, yeah. There'd been a, a, a strict protocol in terms of courtship and all of that that you do see in the movie. I don't know if it's exactly accurate. No, I, I no, no, it, it would be fairly but, accurate. I I know from talking to I used to watch this film with my grandfather. He was a massive mm-hmm. John Wayne fan, and he would tell me about his parents and even like some stories about my my grandmother and her 
uh, parents as well. This isn't terribly uncommon there. Um, uh, cer- certainly at the time, they, they wouldn't have been allowed to go out without chaperones, particularly when this was shot. Yeah. Um, my great-grandparents, I was lucky enough to know one of my great-grandmothers before she died. And, she, you know, from what she was telling me, it's like, oh no, you weren't allowed to go go out with them at all. You had to like it was be her older brother. Yeah. He used to like and he'd, he'd be oh and he you know he'd be you know give him like he'd be allowed to, to to walk ahead of them and they'd maybe hold hands or something but he'd be there at the back and he's like, Oh I didn't see nothing, you know <laughs> he'd be well, he'd know the score. He'd know, know the but, You know like if they were going to like a dance or something he'd yeah. be but anyway, he'd, he'd be but they'd be but he'd be like, space for the Holy Spirit. Like oh yeah exactly like <laughs> but it'd be in case like oh Peter I got uh, one of the my cousins along as well I'll dance with her then and like <laughs> kind of thing. But it's certainly certainly not inaccurate I don't think um, it's it's kind of almost I suppose weird if you kind of look at it now and you, you don't sort of yeah, I mean, have in, the in kind the age of, of Tinder it's weird to, yeah. <laughs> to look at this matchmaking style but obviously that's the way it was and especially in Ireland which is a deeply religious country yeah and I, I think as well it's when you didn't using kind of a matchmaker was something where if you it's only like farmers who couldn't find wives. Yeah, I mean, one thing that w- is, was a certain yeah, aspect of that. One thing that is brought up a lot is that Mary Kate is a spinster, meaning that she's what in her thirties and hasn't felt, hasn't which is married. Kind of almost like yeah, it's unheard uncommon. of. Because it's generally like you'd you'd send them off to a convent to be a nun if they if they got yeah. to a certain age, like basically, which not that was like mid to late twenties if they if they hadn't been married off. Because yeah, was, it's very it's much a different thing. time, and you got married quite quickly in those days. It's very much like get the kid because you know, it's like well, he's got land or she's got land and a bit of money, and you're trying to for social status almost, and uh, you know, oh, well, we need a few sons to look after our farm and their farm, and they're gonna go together and everything else. So it's um. There's definitely an aspect to that there, but matchmaking is, I suppose, something you see in other cultures as well. But in Ireland, you know, outside of that, you know, you you wouldn't meet women in the pub. I think this is something the Philanders oh, yeah, get right. They're, they 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 would have been back down with the snow stuff. Yeah, they're the Kelly. But um, outside of that, I mean, like particularly when he tries to talk to her after mass. Yeah, that, that was weird though. That's I think that's actually fairly accurate because, but like just cupping the holy water into his hand. That is, it's like. Who does is this? Who does that? Like some weird nineteen fifties sexy thing to do? I don't get that at all. And it's if anything, it's actually quite offensive. Yeah, if you're a Catholic because that's stabbing your hand into the holy water. I, that's yeah, that's quite odd. And I mean, now you wouldn't do it at all. I mean, no. Today's society, putting your hand in someone else's water. Well, on a slight aside, I know I told you this story. They obviously got rid of all the the, the fonts for holy water yeah, in churches. No, but I saw this great guy over in the US and he had individual shot glasses of holy water. So when you went in there, you could have your own shot glass of holy water and bless yourself. You didn't have to share it. I was like, that's actually quite clever. See, the, the worry there is that... You start necking up. Yeah. I, I mean, we have uh, muscle memory there. And uh, look, sometimes it happens to me with an espresso where I'll just get it and be like, ah, perfect. And down the hatch and they're like, ah, that hurts. But it's just like, you know, it tastes like wine. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Um, so I, I think that was yeah, that think, was fair enough. Like, I think uh, you had uh, something about the religious... It's something interesting I'd, I'd like to talk about. And it, it's we've touched on this a little bit before, but... I am um, obviously you're, you're introduced to the priest as the narrator, actually the yeah. father. Um, what's his bloody name again? Peter Lanigan's character, anyway. Sorry, Peter Lanigan is, is the character's name, isn't it? I couldn't tell you. It doesn't really matter too much. Yeah, but the, 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 the Catholic, 
Catholic, the Catholic priest, who's actually the narrator in the film, he kind of involves himself in the plot and he even has to do his own little his prayers because he lied to... Yeah, that part I found hilarious. I found it very it funny. It was just like Micheline gives him prayers to do because he lied. Um, <laughs> That's brilliant. And I, I thought, like, yes, it's like Cure as well, who's like um, the younger priest, who's like at the end of the film, he, yeah. the man jumps out of bed because he's given him the last rites. Yeah, yeah, and he's like, I want to see the fight. <laughs> um, which is great. And I, I think I liked him as well. He's kind of a character, but it, it says something as well about... the kind of deference of the priest and there's bits in it I quite like where he threatens to read Will's name out in mass for causing trouble oh yeah yeah that's a very old fashioned Irish thing and it was basically the country's like very very Catholic and if your name was read out in mass oh you were in serious trouble like yeah. this like if the bishop heard about that then you'd be summoned and it's like he could excommunicate you yeah just on that <laughs> what even um, what uh, Will Denher was doing where he's like write his name down in the book and then cross it out was that kind of almost a uh... It, not that not, I'm not religious, strictly aware. You know, it's, it's kind of almost a curse. It, it, it's a an way. older kind of Irish thing of striking out someone's name. So like a name, like a, a line for being struck out, is kind of a symbolic thing. But it would have been very much a "this is what I think of you" kind of thing. It, it, it's it's not so much as religious, but but uh, but I, I suppose like it is interesting as well. And the, the fact that I, I I would say like there isn't a deference to the priest almost in kind of a weird way that I don't think Katie Mary Kate wouldn't have gone up to a priest in the way that she did when he was fishing that I, I think at the time sure I mean it's very familiar what you wouldn't have yeah I, a lot more reverence at the time it would have very much been a priest was almost above you and it's something that you see very briefly when he goes to church and he meets Mary Kay for the first time is that the way the altar is because this is 1952 this was before they had the, the big liturgical reforms about because mass was still done in Latin at the time oh right and the priest would have been facing away from you. So it uh, seems rude, but okay. yeah, because we we know what I think it's the called the Paul the Sixth Mass or whatever it is. It's it's the version of Mass that was adopted after the Second Vatican. It was very unpopular at times. Like, oh, the priest is going to face us and speak in like English or Irish. As opposed to like turning away from us and speaking in Latin and keeping a bit of mystery there. How are we supposed to play on our phones if he's looking at us? <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's it, it's quite interesting there. So it was very much a, 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 a reverent towards the the priest. You know, he was oh we 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 were simply too stupid to understand the Bible on our own. Yeah. That was the whole kind of that was actually that's actually a very important thing between Catholics and Protestants. And I'll talk about the reverend in a moment and his and his wife. <laughs> you know, so I I think that there a priest wouldn't have allowed himself to be in a pub like that I don't think I, I, I just felt that knowing what I know about my my own family kind of growing up at some of them were, did grow up in like rural places at that time that seems a little bit out of place but I think it it, it maybe it was the car- the priest himself might have you know chosen to be more pally and kind yeah, of friendly back. I mean obviously like not that. fishing and having a good time yeah and I think and I think that's fine I, but I, I think it definitely if even he was a bit more relaxed and stuff like that whole kind of trendy priest there's is, your sequel Rob we need the sequel where that priest catches the fish. Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> we we'll call it Jaws. And maybe, you know, the good thing is, well, you meet the Reverend and his his wife, the Reverend Mayfair. And, which is an interesting thing, and I actually like how it touches all my congregations only. cigarettes. Yeah, and it, it two has only like two or three in his congregation, and it kind of does put out there that this is obviously a man of letters, a very yeah. a man who was like a poet, and he's he's aware of um you know Sean Thornton's career as a boxer because he used to be a boxer himself. I think it's it's briefly yeah, touched on, yeah, and it's it's kind of interesting because of course well, of course he would because he's he's he probably only came to the priesthood a lot later than the Catholic did, and he's also like he's allowed to have the wife and stuff like that. So it is interesting. I, I, 
I mean, I think in that very rural part of Ireland where this film is set in the time frame it is, you wouldn't really have seen as much intermingling between Catholics and Protestants as I think is portrayed here. And I I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, this... In places like that, Protestants would have been associated with being the landowning class, like literally the sure, landed yeah. gentry and also like the, the Anglo-Irish people, like, you know, the, the, the Marquess of Sligo, you know, the Brown family who made their money through slavery, had a big, massive house up there in Westport and huge amounts of lands and they'd be employing the, the Irish on them and evicting them or stuff. And some of them were nice and I'm not going to attacking the Marquess of Sligo. The current one is Australian, I believe. Nice. Like, you know, that thing where, like, every, all of his kids have died. Oh, yeah, all women, yeah. So it just goes up and, and then it goes, oh, your seventh cousin has just died. Congratulations, uh, your lordship. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I just think it's it's a bit, perhaps here, starkly accurate in my view. And I mean, I'd love to read more synopses about this film and particularly about religion. But I... I don't know if the Catholic priest would have probably given out to him if he said, why were you over at the Reverend's house last night? Why were you talking to him? You should be coming to me about that. And Because particularly at the time, if you stepped foot in a Protestant church, you were excommunicated. Yeah, was, was the thing. And... Uh, I don't think they did too much research into that. Well, it's, but... a, it, it's just, a, I, I just think it, it's always been the bit of the film that kind of made me think, surely they wouldn't have done that and I think as well Michael Oves the actor that played him was actually a Protestant from Dublin as was his brother who was one of the other people in the film and even like when the priests like cover their collars so that the the Anglican the Church of Ireland bishop the Protestant bishop comes down and thinks to pretend like they're all Protestants there's no way they would have done that because if their their bishop found out they'd have gotten kicked out of the church for that I think the the last thing on that is before we'll move on I don't want to drag yeah no like we'll we'll get into a bit of trivia before we finish up but just the the reason we're doing The Quiet Man is that it's clearly seen as one of the most quintessential yeah uh, paddywhackery movies yeah. there is and I didn't really see as much of that as I was expecting I think from what you're saying there's a lot of um, it's an idealistic kind of perfect world Ireland where yeah. Protestants and Catholics live in harmony together I think as well it is a bit and I'll tell a brief personal thing if I could here just because my great grandparents one set of them you know got together literally when this film was set in the 1920s in, in, in Limerick and my great grandfather was an English Protestant he moved over here to work on the train lines actually uh, the Westflare Railway uh, which is which uh, not too similar to the trains here and my great grandmother was an Irish Catholic living in Limerick City obviously they met and I don't know how they met it certainly wasn't through a matchmaker <laughs> but obviously there was a religious issue there shall shall we say so to kind of get into the whole character why I think this is so crazy and one of our other close friends as well he also had a set of great grandparents in the same place where it was a Presbyterian and a Catholic and this is what happened so you know she actually asked my grandmother to go to the priest and be like I met this great fellow and he's like well First and foremost, you're you're a horrible sinner for doing that. You have to go to mass every single day for three months. You know you have to. You'll sign a contract saying all the kids have to be raised Catholic, or else you're all going to hell. And the bishop has to give you personal permission for it. All the kids have to go to an Irish speaking school run by nuns. All of that. So, and even when after the first of the two of them both die quite young, and there's even the run reviews about burying them together. Yeah, it was the thing because oh you can't do that. But that's kind of the point I'm making about. About this is that there is a lot more to it than really is in this film and I don't think that is entirely particularly in a roared place like that you wouldn't maybe have seen this the way it is like there's a great bit in it where Danaher goes like oh I'll join the Church of Ireland and the priest goes they wouldn't take you <laughs> that's quite funny as well yeah but, but as I said I think there is an idealized view of Ireland yes, here yes and that's kind of where people get 
the the Paddy Wackery from. I mean, obviously Ireland's changed a lot since it absolutely it has. was filmed, but even then it was. It changed a lot since the time period when it was actually it is, being and portrayed. E- even things like where they were they were doing like the races on on the beach, which is an Irish thing as well. You would see that in places in the west, like um, down in Banna Beach and Kerry and all that, where you have like a long length of beach like that. They do race horses there. I'm less certain about the bagpipes. That. That yeah, those those were a mistake. They should have been inland pipes, really, but they weren't. They were Scottish pipes. I can kind of see what they're doing, but I, I, they, they, I don't think music would have been used in the, the way it was there. And also, yeah, just, I, I think we said that before. The yeah, the racing for the bonnets thing. I'm maybe that's something that did happen. I'm not familiar with that myself. I didn't. Well, I think they do it this. now, just kind of because of the movie. Yeah, it's, it's like, perhaps it was historically accurate. I I did look up a little bit of this. I couldn't really find anything. My mother didn't really know from this film as well because I asked her, and it. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's fine. But well, I mean, we do know a, a local expert on horses and horse racing that once we see him again, we might be we, able to. Sure to <laughs> ask a few questions about it. Loni cost us five euro to get the answers to. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose as well. Yeah, the, the couple of brief things about the pub. I, I like I said, I think it was accurate. Um, in that there were no women there to sound a bit misogynistic, and there was like the back area. But what I quite liked in it was they're drinking Guinness, but he specifically says it's porter, which is correct because it wouldn't have been stout at the time. Yeah, it would. And there's even a great bit where in the bar, where the, the you can see it best when the children come in from the middle of the fight, Sean and Will, and they get oh have a porter, it won't drop your heartbeat as much, and you you can see like the two taps there. For the, the Guinness. Yeah. So, you, like like I was talking about when I t- talked about the Guinness, you had the, the high-pressure one and the low-pressure one. It wasn't nitrogen at the time. I thought, that's actually a really nice touch because it, it's accurate as well. But they were still doing that in the 1950s. So, I think it's a wonderful little thing you can actually see into history how a pub was at the time. Because, like, it's, you have porter being poured or in the bottles and then you have your whiskey and maybe a bit of sherry. That's it. And it, it, I think that is... It's, it's, it's nostalgic and it's very nice to kind of see that as well. Um, I also love as well that... Um, the, the the fella Feeney, you know, the, the little kind of ratty fella who's yeah, down here. Yeah. He goes around mind sweeping when he comes into the bar. Did you notice that? He robs. Oh yeah, of, I did notice he, he was robbing pints. He robbed it like it's. It's. I think it's a great little thing about his character that subtle. It's you subtle. See he it. he like welcome. Bill Will Danner comes in, pushes the other guy away. He just robs your man's pint and then starts wanders off with it. I think it's a great little thing for him because he's the same guy that oh I'll go down and rub the floor. Don't don't give not give him my dinner cake or he's like robbing bits of yeah, other people's yeah. plates. It's 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 a it's a great little thing there. Yeah. So I think definitely a misunderstood film because I didn't see anything that would make it similar to the, the type of movie that we're looking for. Yeah. I mean, certain bits were inaccurate, but those. I think it's the, this is the film that everyone told us to review because I think yeah. that is the ultimate American view of Ireland film and it's yeah, not inaccurate and I, and I think that this would have cemented a certain view of Ireland that you see in the likes of Derby O'Gill and other movies yeah. and probably like the Yank would have been it's this is what the, we view Ireland as it's not the first kind of Hollywood film about Ireland we'll actually review that another day I've, I've, I've told you about it it's a surprise for later about a much longer form episode we're going to yeah. try in the future but it's this would have been the big one. This was the first really popular one before Darby O'Gill that presented Ireland in this way. And I think it did a good job. I, I think it's, for what it is like being set in 1920s Ireland, I think it's accurate. It's 
enough. I think it's it is idealized, as I, I think we can all agree there. But as a piece of art, I think it's very well done. It's believable. It's beautifully shot in places on location. The music is outstanding. I really love the soundtrack on this. How it it has like this the strings and the build up for all the tension and all the bits where they're running and puts in like Irish airs and kind of jigs and reels to it. And even the yeah. songs they're singing in the pub, it's it's a wonderful little thing. And I I think it does a fantastic job with the music. I must say. And Emery Hart did all her own singing as well, which I think is yeah, wonderful. Yeah, she's uh, really good. Great singer she is. Um, I suppose before we move on to any kind of other trivia and stuff, my favourite line from the film: uh, "You can buy me a drink at your own wake." Yeah, that's a brilliant a line. <laughs> I I am going to use that someday on someone and probably get shot for it. <laughs> Right, so uh, into a bit of trivia. I think the most interesting one is that what Mary-Kate whispers at, at the very end is completely unknown. Yeah, we have no idea what it is. Uh, it was only known between herself, John Wayne, and uh, John Ford. Ford. So it's something. Obviously, maybe she only knew it and John Ford knew it and it shocked him and then they ran off. <laughs> Whatever it was. But uh, we won't speculate. Maybe she said something to him in Irish. Oh. Yeah, you'd never. Uh, just some funny things that happened... Uh, in this, in a scene in the cottage where the wind is, is uh, whipping uh, Mary Kate's face, uh, what is this? She kept squinting, and so John Ford screamed at her in the strongest language to open her eyes, and uh, she goes, uh, "What would a bald-headed son of a bitch know about hair lashing across his eyeballs?" <laughs> <laughs> and it's like. That's great because that's exactly what Mary Kate would say in that situation. That really like fiery she, Irish she girl. Does, she does gets her character no bother whatsoever. Yeah. There you go. Uh, what else have we got? So when Ford pitched the idea to Hollywood producers, he was told that it was a city Irish story that won't make a penny. I think he was very wrong. Yeah. I mean, considering we're talking about it now, and uh, a lot of people talk about it, I think it made its money back and then some. Uh, considering for Republic Pictures, it was the only movie that they've ever done or the first and yeah first and only movie that received an academy award nomination for best picture hmm. they normally did uh, low budget westerns and comedies and war pictures um i think it, it certainly earned them a lot of money <laughs> i think this is yeah. very well off uh, doing uh, them. when maureen slaps john wayne in the face she actually broke a bone in her hand oh jesus and uh they weren't filming the movie in sequential order so she couldn't wear a cast to fix it Oh, God, that's awful. <laughs> yeah. So going through the rest of the movie, she just had a broken bone in her hand. Um, it would almost be interesting to go back and look and see if she was, like, holding her hand differently in certain scenes. Yeah, I I didn't notice it, really, so they, I no, think they did it quite well. her hand or whatever. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Especially, you know, like, she was dragged across the ground later on through pit, through horses. Yeah, that looked pretty rough. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was actually selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry in 2013. Fair enough, I think it deserves that. And uh, one of the, the funny things is that in the movie E.T., he's watching the movie, The Quiet Man. Okay. And uh, he's got a psychic link to uh, the kid whose name I cannot remember right now. Elliot. Elliot, yes, of course. Obviously, I should remember that. <laughs> I'd be right here. <laughs> um, and, like, Elliot is... Uh, he's watching the scene in the, where she tries to run out of the cabin near the start. Yes. Or the, the cottage, I should say. And Elliot is recreating that with a girl in his class. Oh, Because he's yeah, watching it. Yeah, that's and right. He likes, he, like, he's he's too short. And, like, a, like, whatever way, like, it's getting really windy because of E.T.'s nebulous powers. I forgot about it. And, like, this. a kid yeah. tries to, like, crawl between them. And then he steps up on the kid to kiss her. I remember <laughs> so, that now, actually. So, clearly, yeah. just uh, Steven Spielberg giving a nod to a, a great film. 
in his own. I completely forgot about that. I I remember I saw E. T. when they did the reshoot, the remake of it. Well, not yeah. the remake. You know, they did they they they, they, they had to replace all the guns of walkie talkies, <laughs> and they put it How out in the cinema again in about two thousand and three. <laughs> Which, in retrospect, I'm like, why were they carrying walkie talkies <laughs> like that? <laughs> Big AK walkie-talkie. <laughs> oh, God. So uh, I think that'll be about it for us. Next week, we're going to be watching Dancing at Lunasa. We will. A uh, great film with Meryl Streep, so we'll see how that goes, yep. considering we're actually in Lunasa right now. We are. So that'll be good for us. So, Rob, why don't you play us out there? Uh, thanks very much for listening, guys. We uh, appreciate all feedback, as like we said before. We'll probably throw this up on, I think, Reddit for a yeah. bit of attention. It's a, The Quiet Man. Uh, we're hoping as well you, you might like the new intro music on this. We've I, I've tracked it down, and we're hoping we might make a few editing changes here that we hope you like. If you, if you have any feedback on that, please let us know. Um, you can reach us at Twitter, at, at BlarneyPod. Or you can email us at talkingblarneypod at gmail.com. And this was by far the most requested film. So thank you very much. We've got a nice few things lined up in addition to Dancing with Lunaset. We've got things that are not just films. Yeah, and also no, a few, few good ideas. And also a few longer form episodes. There's plenty more where this came from. So yeah. for me, it's goodbye. Uh, just before we go, just please, if you would, tell a friend. Oh yeah, do tell uh, your try friends. To, we're, we're trying to build uh, an audience as best we can. If you have anyone you know who's interested in Ireland, uh, we'd love... For them to have a listen. Just if everyone told 10 friends, uh, which obviously is... They'd have more friends. <laughs> yeah. How do you get 10 friends? Email us in. But uh, just if everyone told uh, a couple of people, uh, we could really grow and hopefully get better production quality then. Absolutely. And... We're, we're going to be working on getting uh, two mics set up. Yeah, and hopefully. eventually we're going to have to be recording this remotely again. But we'll, we'll yeah, see how we'll that see goes. How so I suppose that's goodbye for me. Goodbye. Slán yeah. See you guys. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.